1: And welcome to episode 137 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Estella's Revenge, Stevie Diriksen, Liz Koykari, Jessica Quinlan, I have an old grandma name, Rowena Caldwell, Alana Cook, Sadea McDonough, Candy Keeley, Anna A., Laura Navarro, Sarah Lee, Jen McHugh, Nora Morin, Kimberly Nava, Jessica Belaus, Ms. Benzedrine, Sarah Cole McCarthy, Shane Green, and Naomi Blakey. Thank you so much for signing up to our Patreon. And I know I say this every single week, but I really do appreciated. It means a massive amount to me and I know I've also said every week that the Patreon is currently not active but it is not currently active. I just don't want anybody signing up under false pretenses. There's no content being posted and subscriptions have been frozen. You can subscribe if you want for five dollars and access all of the back catalogue of episodes but there will be no new content for a while and I'm hoping to be back posting content on Patreon in September. I'm going to go straight into our story this week. I'm really excited about this episode. I've had this book in my Kindle library for ages. I came across it randomly. It was free on Kindle Unlimited, so I decided to buy it. And it was only this week that I actually sat down and read it. And the book is called The South Shields Poltergeist, One Family's Fight Against an Invisible Intruder by Darren W. Ritson. As always, the link to that will be in the description of this episode. I'm going to get straight into it. I'm excited.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The thing that always fascinates me about poltergeist cases is their similarities. Each case feels like a carbon copy of the last And it often feels like you could just swap out names and places and still be telling the same story. It's the reason why we don't do more than one haunted house story in a row. It becomes a linear and predictable narrative. But I think that makes it all the more interesting. Cases that are strikingly similar have been reported all over the world and all the way back to ancient times. And often these cases happen to normal everyday people who are living normal everyday lives and suddenly they're swept up in a whirlwind of inexplicable events. They aren't necessarily believers, or paranormal enthusiasts, or even actively spiritual. They are often relatively ambivalent towards all things otherworldly, and are suddenly launched headfirst into a world of evaporating furniture and spontaneous fires. This story is adapted from a book called The South Shields Poltergeist, One Family's Fight Against an Invisible Intruder by Darren W. Ritson. And like I said, I read countless poltergeist stories, but the very first chapter of this book made my hair stand on end, because it didn't seem to follow the same narrative as all the others. South Shield is a normal coastal town in the northeast of England, and Lock Street was a normal street. It wasn't a gothic mansion or an old drafty cottage, It was a standard family home in which Marianne, her partner Mark, and her three-year-old son Robert lived. Usually poltergeist activity starts with bangs and knocks. Maybe the family don't notice at first. Maybe in hindsight they look back and they think, oh, those knocks in the night weren't the pipes. Maybe that was the start of it all. But for Marianne and Mark, it didn't start subtle and escalate. It was Monday, the 3rd of July 2006, and England was in the grips of a heatwave. The days seemed to stretch out long and dusty and hazy, and there was no respite from the oppressive sun. Marianne milled around the house, opening windows, hoping that a breeze would materialise and cool the house even for a brief second. Robert and Mark had gone to the shop on a desperate hunt for ice pops and Marianne trudged up the stairs to return the toys into Robert's bedroom. She opened the door and was immediately bathed in cool air. She stood with her eyes closed, letting the air wash over her. A breeze was coming from somewhere. She opened her eyes and her gaze fell on the window, closed tightly with the sun bursting through. The cold suddenly felt as oppressive as the heat and the hairs on her arms stood on end. Confused, she scanned the room and her eyes locked onto a figure standing next to Robert's bed. The figure was white and seemed to be almost smoky. There were no distinguishable features, just a vague humanoid shape. Marianne blinked. The figure was gone and the world seemed to refocus. The room was suddenly stiflingly hot and the sun seemed brighter. Shaken but already dismissive, she dropped the toys into the toy chest and turned to go downstairs when she felt a small but hard poke of a finger in her lower back. It's easy in situations like this to dismiss it as the invention of the heat-addled brain. There was no steady build-up, just a sudden vision of a white mist. But it was the beginning of the activity, and the activity was sudden and ferocious. Marianne didn't tell Mark what had happened, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision, but she had forgotten about the strange event in the heat of the afternoon and the excitement of ice lollies. Two days later, however, the event would come back into sharp focus. Marianne was busy downstairs when Mark called down to her. His voice was far away and she moved to the bottom of the stairs to hear him better. Marianne, can you come up here please? She strode up the stairs, chattering to him with each step. He was standing at the top of the stairs when she reached him. He didn't turn around. Did you do this? Mark asked. Again, his voice confused. Do what? she asked, fanning her face, trying to look into his. He was looking intently at something in the middle distance. Marianne's eyes followed his gaze and she saw the shadowy outline of something hanging from the roof, dark and silhouetted against the light coming through the window. Her breath caught in her throat, as she watched the outline of something big swaying ever so slightly. It was a rocking horse. The rocking horse that lived in the corner of Robert's room. It had been hung up from the loft hatch by the reins. There was no need for discussion as both Marianne and Mark instinctively knew by the sheer confusion on each other's faces that neither of them were responsible for putting it there. It was such a strange sight that they both just stood and stared, and though neither admitted it at the time, they were both a bit afraid to touch it. Eventually Marianne moved in a sudden burst of bravery and unhooked the rocking horse and carried it back to Robert's room where it belonged and shut the door. They stood in the hallway staring at each other for a moment until Marianne said Something weird happened to me the other day. From this point onwards the activity heightened. Mark was working upstairs and had a ladder positioned in the hallway. Out of nowhere he was struck hard on the back with the ladder, almost as if it was thrown, and the force was so great that he was left with bruises across his shoulders and considerable pain. It was Sunday the 9th of July when the activity was particularly awful. It was only six days since Marianne had seen the figure in the bedroom. At 10am Marianne went upstairs to see a small chair from Robert's bedroom placed neatly at the top of the stairs in the middle of the landing. Robert and Mark had been downstairs all morning. She returned the chair and went to her bedroom to get whatever it was that she needed, and stopped in her tracks as she made her way back downstairs. Sitting on the landing outside Robert's room was the rocking horse. She breathed deep and put the rocking horse back and went to tell Mark. They went together to check upstairs and found toys scattered all over the landing, Meticulously, they picked up the toys and put them back in their rightful places. They returned downstairs, listening to the sound of toys and objects being moved around. They chose to ignore it until midday, when they simply couldn't ignore it anymore. They trudged upstairs to survey the damage, and a prayer was scrawled across the door of Robert's bedroom in red crayon. Marianne and Mark took Robert and left the house. They, of course, didn't know who to turn to. As is always the case in these stories, who do you call? Do you call the police and say you think there is a ghost in your house? Do you call a medium or a priest? They didn't know and when they returned to the house, the decision was made for them. Robert's bed had been moved. A large chest of drawers was on the landing and in the middle of Robert's room was an etch sketch that just said the word, die. They called the priest. In the wait for the priest to arrive, the dog and the cat refused to go upstairs. The dog paced and growled at the bottom of the staircase and the cat hissed and hid. The priest arrived and blessed the house the next day, exactly one week after the initial sighting. And the house went quiet. For three days. It was Thursday the 13th of July when the situation became even more drastic. The house had been quiet since the priest had been there and Marianne and Mark wondered if it was all over. A mere flash in the pan and a story they would tell at parties in years to come. At 9.30 in the evening, Marianne tiptoed up the stairs to check on Robert and stopped when she saw the chair from his bedroom sitting in the middle of the landing again, this time with a toy rabbit perched on top of it. She whispered for Mark as loudly as she dared, and he quietly and quickly crept up the stairs. He gasped when he saw it, and almost in unison they saw the glint of something metallic. Tucked between the arm and the body of the rabbit was a large blade. It was like the blade of a box cutter, and they had no idea where it had come from. Between this and the scrolling messages, there was no doubt that whatever this was, it meant harm. Marianne crept into Robert's bedroom while Mark disposed of both the blade and the toy rabbit. They began a vigil next to his bed, terrified that harm would come to him. And they were right. As they sat in his room, they heard a creaking sound. It was soft, at first, but methodical. It got louder and louder and they realised that the chest of drawers was swaying from side to side, creaking and groaning under its own weight. As soon as Mark got up to remedy it, the dresser violently toppled onto the bed in which the sleeping Robert was cuddled. Marianne screamed, and Mark pulled the dresser off the bed as quick as a flash. The dresser had fallen over the headboard, creating a perfect nook in which Robert remained perfectly safe. Shocked at the sudden panic, but perfectly safe. They packed their bags and left to stay with Marianne's parents. This is only a short series of events that occurred over the space of 10 days. Marianne, being so perturbed by the events, kept a log of times and dates, and what you heard was only a selection. Chairs were stacked on tables. Mark regularly moved items of furniture outside, like chairs and the rocking horse, and they would somehow find their way back inside and upstairs onto the landing. Odds and ends, like toy bricks, would materialize out of midair or be thrown around rooms. The house would regularly erupt with knocks and bangs. Messages appeared on the doodle board. The letters C-U were written repeatedly. There were multiple other witnesses to events. Marianne's brother was witness to the bangs and the knocks and the moving objects. Marianne was standing outside with her father when a mug dropped from Robert's upstairs window and smashed onto the footpath in front of them. Marianne recognised it immediately. She had had her morning coffee and left the mug on the chest of drawers in Robert's room when she was getting him ready. Mark was downstairs and stuck his head out the back door with Robert in his arms to see what the commotion was. The cup lay in smithereens on the pathway and Robert's window was firmly shut. But they knew. They had seen the cup fall from above and Marianne knew it had been sitting on that chest of drawers upstairs. The priest, it seemed... Had not worked. So the next step was to try some local paranormal investigators. Darren and Mike loved a good poltergeist case, as they were often a puzzle just waiting to be solved, and often they weren't paranormal at all. Sometimes there was a physical explanation, like faulty pipes or electricity, and sometimes there was a psychological reason. Sometimes people convinced themselves that there were dark forces at play or it was someone that they loved that had come back to give them a message. And other times there were people who just created a story. There are many reasons why people would do this, sometimes they did it for attention, the quiet pleasure of creating a mystery. Sometimes they did it as a quiet form of revenge, the chance to scare someone and gloat in their own ability to trick people. Sometimes they did it for money the belief that a good story can be sold to the newspapers or those dodgy magazines that almost exclusively exist in waiting rooms. And sometimes people do it and they just don't know why. Darren and Mike wondered if this was the case here. Was someone in or adjacent to the family responsible for what was happening? When they arrived at the house, they could tell that whatever was happening was deeply impacting the family. They made their way to Robert's room, which seemed to be the epicentre of the activity. It was not long before they witnessed Lego bricks being thrown around the room and, on reviewing the recordings later that evening, the audio was full of clicks and bangs, electronic beeps and the sound of marbles being bounced on the floor. Drops of water and footsteps and soft coughs that hadn't come from any of the living residents of the household. As they were packing up to leave... Marianne grabbed Darren's arm and asked him how they would get rid of it because she knew this thing meant her harm. The activity continued. Toys were scattered around, stacked up on the outside windowsills of second floor windows. Chairs were stacked on tables or wedged on top of cupboards and wardrobes. Items will be moved from one room to another and both Marianne and Mark were frequently locked into the bathroom. The door would open a crack and then get stuck, as though a huge force was pushing it from the other side, and then it would suddenly burst open. And then Robert began to talk about the man. It started with what Mark and Marianne thought were nightmares. He would talk about the man in his bedroom, or the man in his wardrobe. He would say that the man floated over his bed at night-time, but there was one day which made them realise that perhaps the nightmare was actually real life. It was early in the afternoon and Marianne was about to get Robert a snack. He was busy playing on the floor with his toys and she asked him to sit on the sofa so he could eat comfortably. I can't, Mummy. She absently asked him why, but was still picking up bits from the floor. His response, however, made her blood go cold. I can't, Mummy. The man is sitting there. Look! She looked and sure enough there was a clear indentation in the sofa as though an adult was sitting there. Her breath quickened and then the indentation plumped back up as though whoever was sitting there had stood up. On another occasion Robert tugged on Marianne's sleeve and whispered Mummy, the man is in the cupboard. And no sooner had he finished the sentence when the cupboard door flew open. Look mummy, there he is. He's wearing a hat. Robert alternated between seeing a man in a hat, an older lady, and a little boy called Sammy who he regularly played with. No one could quite discern whether Robert was genuinely seeing these things, whether there were three entities in the house or whether there was one, or even whether there was nothing. When they found Robert tied up inside a blanket under a table in the middle of the night, they decided that they needed to actively try and stop this phenomena. Mike, one of the paranormal investigators, was of Native American heritage and offered to do a smudging ritual, which seemed to work. Until Mark's credit card went missing and he found it standing perfectly upright on the middle step of the stairs. And just like a switch had been flicked, the smudging stopped working. Objects moved, disappeared and reappeared again all over the house. One day Marianne had had enough. She would put her phone down and it would be moved and she was just so tired of it all. She marched into Robert's room and shouted, Please stop this. Please just leave us alone. In response there was a crash from inside the cupboard. She opened it tentatively and out tumbled the Etch-a-Sketch. With the words, I am sorry, scrawled on it. Through the medium of etch sketching they learned to communicate with Sammy, who told them in his scrawling hand that he loved Robert, but was afraid of the dog. And while the paranormal researchers and the family referred to the messages as all being from Sammy, it was very clear that the handwriting was different on each message. Darren and Mike decided the only way to find out for sure what was going on was to send images of the etch sketch to two separate handwriting experts for analysis. There's always a point in poltergeist stories where questions arise about the validity of the claims and the possibility of a hoax. And this case, I'm afraid, is no different. In the case of the Battersea poltergeist, there were similar paranormal anomalies, including letters and notes allegedly written by the entity, In the Enfield-Poltergeist case, Janet and her sister admitted to faking a small amount of the phenomena, which then threw the validity of the whole case into question. And in this case, the handwriting expert stated that the notes were all written by the same person, likely an adult male, who was actively trying to make their handwriting look childlike. The intricacies of the report of the handwriting expert were incredible, and seemed to point the finger at an adult male living in the home. And the attention now turned to Mark. In poltergeist cases, there is almost always a teenage girl involved, with paranormal enthusiasts theorising that it is the emotional energy of these girls that either attracts or creates the poltergeist. But there was no teenage girl in this house, and Robert was not generally a distressed or difficult little boy. Was it possible that some inner turmoil in Mark was causing this phenomena? Or was it possible that he was outright performing these alleged paranormal events? Mark actually admitted that he was the cause of a few of the incidents. But there were many more incidents that were witnessed by others where he simply wasn't in the room or even wasn't in the house. As was the case in the Enfield poltergeist, There is sometimes the desperate need to prove that something strange is happening in the house, and that can result in the decision to fake one or two incidences to try and prove the others. It's flawed logic, but it kind of makes sense. It's easy, therefore, to assume that Mark was responsible for everything that happened. Except there's something else really important that the handwriting expert said she felt compelled to tell Mike and Darren something that had happened to her while she was analysing the handwriting in the images. She said she had gone to the garden in the middle of the afternoon with a cup of coffee to sit and work and was suddenly overcome with a cold dread that somebody was watching her. And in her mind's eye, she clearly saw the dark shadow of a man. A man wearing a wide brimmed hat. And the devastation continued for the family and was witnessed often by Mike and Darren and others who were in the household at the time. On entering Robert's room during one investigation, the team found a stuffed rabbit and a stuffed dog on the small plastic table. Resting in between the arm and the body of the rabbit was a large carving knife from the kitchen and it was positioned on the dog's throat. They looked around and realised that a toy policeman had been hung from a shelf by his neck. Another day Marianne and Mark took Robert to a taster day at nursery, and when they returned, Robert's bedroom was completely trashed. Mark, Marianne, Darren and Mike sat one day in the kitchen with their mobile phones laid out on the table. They had been receiving obsessive phone calls. The landline repeatedly rang, seemingly from Mark's phone. Nobody was touching Mark's phone and he had even dismantled the phone and took the battery out to try and stop this from happening. A robotic voice would say hello over and over again. But there was one night in particular that solidified for Mike that there was no hoax in this house. Marianne and Mark had gone to bed and Mark had fallen asleep almost immediately. Marianne was dozing and felt something soft fall on her face. She assumed it was the duvet, brushed it off and continued to doze. Then she felt another soft thump on her face. And her hands felt a toy dog. And another thump. She sat up and her side of the bed was littered with cuddly toys. She shook Mark awake. Mark, wake up, it's throwing things at me. He sat up and they watched in horror as the duvet seemed to begin to bunch up, as if someone was grabbing the end of it with their fists. And then it was pulled away from them with an almighty tug. Marianne panicked and called Mike, who arrived as soon as he could. And that night, Mike witnessed the furniture and the duvet in their bedroom moving. A plastic table melted and warped in Robert's room as though it was being exposed to extreme heat. Doors flew open and slammed shut and coins materialised all over the house. But most worryingly, while standing in Robert's bedroom, all three of them had seen a large, dark shadow figure walk down the hallway. Mike described it as being around two metres tall and radiating evil. He said that despite the fact this thing had no facial features, he knew that it was staring straight at them as it passed the doorway. There didn't seem to be any respite, and the entity showed no signs of slowing down. It's common for poltergeists to move items around the household. In this case, toys were moved from room to room, toy bricks were thrown out of closed windows into the garden, Large items of furniture were regularly moved and unfortunately the poltergeist realised that it could also move Robert. Previously I mentioned that Robert had been found tightly wrapped up in his blanket under a table. But another time late into the night, Marianne and Mark realised that Robert was gone and tore the house apart looking for him. They found him tied up in his blanket, fast asleep, in the back of a closet in the master bedroom. Marianne then began to receive phone calls and messages. The calls were the same automated voice and said, Die, bitch. I'm going to kill you. Or other similar and terrifying messages and the texts were the same. At this point, Mark was being regularly physically attacked and deep cuts, scratches and welts appeared all over his chest and back. Once while Mike was in the house, he was upstairs alone, and he heard maniacal laughter coming from Robert's room. He relayed that it sounded like an adult, pretending to laugh like a child. He tried to open the door but couldn't, and when he eventually opened the door, the laughing immediately ceased. Robert was not in the room but he then began to laugh maniacally downstairs in the living room. Mark and Marianne would hear a growling man's voice whispering indistinctly over the baby monitor, but no one else would be in the house. Large knives were thrown at Marianne and there was a dawning realisation from both the household and the external investigators that there was no way the family could continue to live under this stress and pressure. Their living arrangement with this invisible terror was not sustainable. Mike, Darren, and their team decided to conduct another Native American ritual, which again seemed to help for a short time. By now it was September, so over a year had passed since the initial white figure in Robert's bedroom, and the calm in the house that had followed the Native American ritual was broken by the movement of objects, items on the stairs, toys appearing in random places with carving knives, items disappearing and reappearing and bangs and knocks and eventually a text message on Marianne's phone, which simply said, I'm back. Further vigils were done but to no avail, and there seemed to be no way to rid the house of the infestation. Until the paranormal investigators consulted a druid and he simply said tell them to turn off any electrical items at nighttime. Poltergeists allegedly feed off electricity and if they turn off their electrical items at night time the activity would stop. And sure enough it did stop. This probably wasn't the end that you were expecting and it's quite an abrupt end. The activity in the household was so wild and so vast and witnessed by so many people that there would never be enough time to recount it all here. There is no real resolution as to what was happening in the house. There was no uncovering of a story about the history of the property or no realisation that someone had played a Ouija board when they were young. The story just is as it is. One day there was no activity in the house and the next day there was. I never quite know where I stand with poltergeist cases, and this one is no different, but I'd never stop finding them fascinating, especially cases that seem to have multiple witnesses from varying belief systems. Is it possible that human beings can have such powerful emotional energy that they manifest these incidences? Or is it possible that these entities really do exist and have the ability to throw knives and move objects? There is also the very real possibility that one person in the household is knowingly or unknowingly responsible for the incidents. But I can never decide which explanation I believe. Like I said, this story only recounts a fraction of what happened in that house. In fact, much of the main body of the story that you just heard is adapted from just four days of the log that was kept by Marianne. So I would highly recommend reading the book if you want to read the full story and then come up with your own conclusion. But if the things are real, that the people have alleged to have heard and witnessed in this house, then really it doesn't bear thinking about. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Uh, Just to remind you that the book is called The South Shields Poltergeist One Family's Fight Against an Invisible Intruder by Darren W. Ritson. I've said that name so many times in this episode that it feels like I'm I'm almost I don't know affiliated with them or being sponsored by them or something I'm not I just found this book I actually it came up as a suggestion when I bought the book about the Battersea poltergeist uh, so it was it was free on Amazon Kindle um, unlimited so I said I'd get it and then only got around to reading it this week I found this case completely fascinating I would love to hear people's thoughts on it I As you guys know from whatever three years of listening to me talking about this stuff. I always end up falling on the side of humans doing things without realising they're doing it. Or doing things for reasons that we don't quite understand. But this story is so wild. And there seem to be so many witnesses to what happened in that house. That there are points in it where I really firmly believed that it was definitely in my opinion, Mark, that was behind all of this. But then there were also points in it when I thought, I don't know that he is. Poltergeist cases, I think, will always fascinate me for that reason because we never quite know how much of it is a human element and how much of it is something otherworldly. And if it is something otherworldly, how do we cope with the fact that something otherworldly is capable of doing these awful things? So if you've got any thoughts about it, do please let me know on the Facebook group or wherever. If you want to send in your own spooky story, you could do so by sending it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can find out everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Planning for your next trip?
0: Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more